Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, the short story October in the Chair, first published in 2002 in Conjunctions 29. We read it in Gaiman's collection, Fragile Things, and this was chosen by our Patreon supporters. It was chosen as one of the four episodes that we're going to do before we get back into the Sandman in a few months. Uh, the other episode they chose is the short story, Chivalry, which is one of my favorites. That's one that we read uh, together, or at least, you know, at the same time as teenagers back in the 90s. So I'm really excited to do that. And of course, also in this bunch of episodes, we're going to be taking a detour for some Kipling, uh, whom we will also talk about a little bit on this episode, and we are also going to take an episode to catch up on the audio drama adaptation. But I think this one we can just get straight into, Brent. So let's do it. So the the deal is this for the story. We're going to get a nested story here. There's a, a story within a story, and you know, the way that works is we start with the frame, we start with the storyteller and his companions. And in this case, we are in a grove of trees. There are 12 people sitting around a campfire. They're, they're roasting different types of sausages. This actually all sounds quite delightful. But the deal is that each of these people represents a month of the year. And I think it is fair to say that they are the months of the year in human form. That's a, a very game and move. And they are here to tell stories. Each of them is going to tell one, but the order is dependent on which of them is in charge, which of them is in the chair, which is a, a duty that rotates as they uh, hold these gatherings throughout the years and decades and centuries, I guess. And this time, it's October's turn. It's October's turn in the chair, right? It's the name of the story. And uh, there's some wonderful descriptive writing here in this setup. And I, I actually just want to read some of this into the microphone before we pause and talk about this, this frame bit, the setup here. October's beard was all colors, a grove of trees in autumn, deep brown and fire orange and wine red, an untrimmed tangle across the lower half of his face. His cheeks were apple red. He looked like a friend, like someone you had known all your life. And because October is in the chair, the, the weather on this uh, this campfire night is typical of October, uh, or at least October in England or maybe the Midwest at any rate. And the bulk of the story is going to be the tale that October ends up telling. But before we get that, we're actually going to get two other very brief stories from some other months. But I think even before we get into any of that, any of this story cycle, we should talk about the the setup. Because I think Gaiman does a great job here of giving each of the months a distinct personality. And there's quite a bit of bickering going on in this frame. I, I enjoyed the banter. Uh, but of course, I'm interested in what is actually going on here, right? What's the, the fantastical premise of this story? So here's the question I've got for you, Brent, is, well, maybe it's multiple questions. But I guess one of them is, do you think that these people are the personification of the months of, of our calendar? And then also something that occurs to me is what is their relationship with each other, which maybe the other way really to put that is, are they siblings, right? Is this basically another way of doing something like the endless? My interpretation was the latter, um, Glenn. I think that they are personifications very similar to the endless. Um, I almost wanted to start mapping at least parts of the endless kind of in parts of each of these months. Um, we do have a reference at the end of the story that at least October, November are brothers. Um, they may be brothers in, um, the kind of, 
esprit de corps sense of brothers, but I got the sense that they were actually brothers in a familial sense, although in the way that the endless are brothers and sisters of each other. I was trying to figure out though, with each of the months kind of, we had, there's a number of things going on, but I think one of the things that's going on is, um, putting aside, well, I think we should talk about January and February kind of separately, but, um, when it comes to the spring and the summer and the fall, and then the, the winter at the end of the calendar year winter. So again, let's discuss January, February separately. Um, we seem to have the age progression of someone's kind of lifespan in some way. They're, they're different characters, but we, we kind of see, kind of behavior that I think we attribute a lot more to young children and, you know, younger teenagers, um, in the spring, and then it gets to slightly older in the summer. And then, um, when you get to September, then you kind of have the, uh, the kind of fun air of superiority <laughs> people tend to get, uh, when they are, um, anywhere from the early adulthood through, you know, even middle age. And then we, Clearly, when we get to October, November, December, um, and what little description we get of December, um, it seems to be someone who creaturely is kind of in the, quote, winter of their life was kind of my interpretation. Yes. And, and this is a pretty standard image of these months, actually, really going back, I think, probably, you know, certainly several centuries. I've seen things like this from the, the Middle Ages, uh, but then also think particularly in the 19th century, you'd get these things in like almanacs or calendars where the month would be personified and you would get the, uh, you know, springtime would be like, a, you know, babies and kids and uh, summer would be yeah, teenagers and 20 and somethings and, and would progress to to old age. And I think the, the only real distinction there is a question of at what point are you marking the beginning? Because there is this real move to want to start the the cycle in the springtime and then see you know winter as being the death and and then the renewal but of course we very strangely and for bizarre reasons begin our our calendar begin our year uh in the middle of winter as opposed to like at the start of spring which is what most humans have done uh and so that that creates some some difficulty so you find some variation there and of course you'll find variation in what these people look like you know the the, the genders of of each of the months and you know particular features and so on. So I don't know of any a specific depiction of this that maps onto what Gaiman is showing us here. Though I think that uh, you're, uh, you're pointing to October in particular, reminding us of one of the endless, though I will say that it's it's not one we've met in The Sandman yet. So perhaps we won't say anything just yet since a big chunk of our audience are reading along with us for their first time. January and February, they were kind of unique because as you said, you know, if we followed kind of the life cycle of uh, that plants might follow, which we have definitely a lot of that kind of layered in some of the descriptions here where October's beard and hair looks like many colors of kind of autumnal leaves. Um, and we get August, I believe August has, uh, yeah, August has thin hair combed in golden wisps across his pink pate, which, I mean, that just evokes to me fields of, of, of growing grain, um, somewhere, um, in the Midwest or England or any place where you're growing grain, I guess, um, right before harvest, but January and February are not kind of the calm, pale eyed, you know, take 
but further that, you know, December has given us December's the only description I think we have is pale blue eyes for December. Um, instead they're, they're very excitable, uh, particularly February and they're very officious. They're very, very officious. And I couldn't decide how much of this was just kind of the way that particularly in January with new year's resolutions, people are just, you know, this year I'm going to, you know, not procrastinate. I'm going to get stuff done. I'm going to follow things very distinctly. So, you know, here is a set path that I will follow. And then by the later in the year, you're just like, yeah, I'll loosely hit it or not. Or I began thinking about it. Um, and it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, Glenn. Maybe it is better maps that January and February is because of the amount of kind of structure and therefore rules that we need to place around children. Um, oftentimes when it comes to parenting that then they can get hyper-focused that like they were told this is the rule, so they shouldn't break the rule. So they get obsessively in following the rules and not understanding that there may be, and you know, it sometimes when for people who have a more structured set of rules as children, it is until later when then uh, there can be an understanding um, that there is the spirit of the rule versus the letter of the rule. And in January and February, I feel like we've got a lot of observances of the letter without maybe the understanding of the spirit of things as much. Well, yeah, I definitely think that you're right, that this is this is petulant children. These are uh, two and a half, three, four year olds uh, who are really into the rules and and, and should be, you know, they're, they're doing when they push back and complain about the rules in, in this way that you're thinking of is really them trying to make sense of what the, the rules are. Uh, we're not there yet with the, <laughs> with our kid. I don't know. We've got maybe, uh, I know we've got at least eight months before that starts. We might actually get a little little longer before that starts, but uh, uh, we'll see how well prepared we are. You know, I'll just read this story again, and that should, that should, that should function as a parenting model, I think, right? <laughs> I think just reading Neil Gaiman stories is probably a good parenting model no matter what. <laughs> just like... And you can read the same ones at different stages of life and they can just take something else from it. I think particularly this story, you know, if you hear it as a small child, then you might gravitate towards certain parts of it more than other parts of it, both in terms of the broad story of the 12 months sitting around. And as you said, there's, we've got a nesting doll situation going on where then we've got the story within the story, or rather we've got an anthology of the three stories within the story. Um, I'm kind of disappointed. We don't get more than the three stories. I kind of wouldn't mind if we had 12 little things. Yeah, we're going to talk about that at the end of the story, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about some parenting strategies as well as we we get into the actual story that October is going to tell. But before we do that, we should talk about the the two vignettes that we do get before we get to that main attraction. And the the first story is told by September. It takes place at a Michelin starred restaurant in Seattle. It's a restaurant that is famed not only for its food but for its wine cellar. There's a customer who orders a meal and also a very fancy bottle of wine to go with it. It's the, the last bottle of 1902 Chateau Lafitte. Uh, it cost $120,000. And the chef decides that the meal the man has ordered is just not good enough to go with a wine that expensive and that rare, the, the last of its kind. And so he cooks him something special, but it turns out that the customer has a rare allergy to that special meal 
and he dies before he's ever able to drink the wine. Uh, the second story is June's, and it is not well told. This is really June's character trait here. Uh, this is a story about a woman who works the x-ray machine at LaGuardia Airport Security, and she has this special ability to see more about a person than the x-ray machine technically reveals. And one day she sees an x-ray that is just so beautiful that she falls in love with the person without even knowing actually who that person is. When she looks out at the line, she can't map the x-ray onto the person because all she's seen is this man's x-ray. But months later, this man comes to the airport again, and this time she really is able to to correlate that x-ray with the passenger. But then she knows it isn't going to work out. He's quite old, she's young, and also she can see from the x-ray that he's going to die soon. And that is the end of the story. And I, I I, did really enjoy both of these tales. I think you said that as well, Brent. I especially enjoyed the way that Gaiman gives both the teller and the audience for these stories a lot of personality. But I also want to point out that this is more or less the same device that we saw in Calliope when Richard Maddox starts babbling out story ideas in rapid succession, because like neither of these stories is particularly <laughs> well developed, but they are both really good ideas. They're like story kernels, really. And I really love, as as you said, Glenn, the amount of character that we're seeing for the teller of the tales for June and versus September in the way that they structure their story, um, the speed at which June kind of gets to the point um, and the heart of things. But also June's kind of truncated, very direct language versus September kind of taking time. Um, almost as if it's a fine wine to like lay out with kind of languid prose the whole setup before finally getting there, which I, I really I, I did enjoy the bit of humor then of in the middle of September telling um, its tale being interrupted by August to clarify that a September's already told this tale and that it was a dumb story, um, but also just the fact that August and June in the summer months, because you're trying to make the most of things also, you know, maybe youth versus age, um, at least stereotypically, like you don't have patience for like the amount of time that September wants to take to tell a story, particularly a story that you've already heard. Um, it's a story that I enjoyed once and I do not necessarily need to hear again, which I feel like if I had a full fleshed out, you know, 50 or even 100 pages of September's story, I would enjoy it once. And then it would be something I would fondly remember that I read, but not necessarily pick up again, um, versus something with the brevity of June's where I would just be like, oh yeah, that's a fun story to maybe pick up again in another decade. Right, right. The The September story feels a lot like a Twilight Zone episode. You, you, What you would need, you know, what we get here, I guess, is really the third act of the story. And so you'd need a first and second act. And that story would have to hinge on how does one go about getting the, the money to, you know, spend uh, on a bottle of wine, what many people spend on their home. You know, how, how do you go about doing that? And if we want this character to be sympathetic, right, we want this to be someone who maybe has earned that money in, you know, before our eyes somehow. And, you know, there's, there's you know, some tragedy that this person dies, not just that this person dies, but because uh, something along the lines of because this person has died, now X is not going to happen. That's a kind of classic Twilight Zone type of story and does seem like that would be great. But, you know, Gaiman and, and also his character September don't give us all of that here. And June's story is just so, so short. And in fact, the way that she tells the story is to say, 
would it be all right if I told the story about then says everything I just <laughs> said to recap it and she gets permission from October to tell the story and then says, oh, no, that's it. I just I just told it. That's that's all I have to say. All I have is the pitch, the three sentences to pitch what the story is. And that's it, which is, I think, also I mean, that reminds me of 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 you know a seventh grader. You know, rate rate raising her hand in in class. You know, to sort of ask a question and actually never really gets past asking if she can ask the question or something like that was my my sense of June. Yeah, I think that that's correct. Although, also showing an understanding for, you know, talking about X ray machines at LaGuardia and talking about you know death um, in a fairly casual, matter of fact way in some ways. uh, June also maps nicely to another member of the endless who we haven't met yet. Um, so we won't go into that, but, uh, I think June and October are both, uh, very much mapped to those. So when we get to the point where we're talking about the endless corollaries down the line in a few episodes, hence, I think we probably need to revisit how they map relative to these months and, and what that may mean. Um, given that Neil, uh, wrote this story after having written those issues. Right. And those two endless are, are pretty memorable, right? So th- those are characters just as a, a consumer of these stories, as a reader of these stories, I can't get out of my head. And, you know, imagine if you're the person who created them. I think they, they are people who live in your mind and they're going to crop up intentionally or no in, in other stories. So it is kind of nice to, yeah, you're right. They're clearly here and it is nice to see them again. But we should get to the main attraction here, which is to say the story that October tells. Uh, this is a story about an American boy who runs away from home. Uh, the first two pages of the the ten or so that this story takes are his backstory and his characterization. And he is uh, ten years old. His name is Donald, but everyone calls him Runt uh, or the Runt because that's what his older brothers call him. It's uh, it's what we're going to call him too because it's also what Gaiman calls him in the sort of guise as just you know omniscient third-person narrator here. So Runt hates it at home. His, his parents don't beat him. They're not keeping him chained in a basement with a rat or anything like that, you know, the way that we have seen in The Sandman. But he doesn't fit in at home. He doesn't fit in in his town or just generally fit in in his own life at all. Mostly, this has to do with his brothers, who are a, a pair of twins, his older brothers. They're good at sports. They're prime physical specimens. And so they get all the praise. They get all the accolades from both parents and teachers. And Runt goes largely unnoticed, except when he's in trouble for something. And gradually, he just starts stockpiling supplies by hiding them in a, a Tupperware container in the garage, which prevents his brothers from finding it. And what he has there are three Mars bars, two Milky Ways, uh, a bag of nuts, a small bag of licorice, a flashlight, several comic books, $37, mostly in quarters, and a packet of beef jerky, which is a great inventory. And he's read about explorers and stuff, so, you know, this seems like it's perfect. He feels pretty prepared to run away. And one day, he does. He comes home from school and dumps out his backpack and puts all this stuff in it and then takes the bus as far west as $10 and quarters can get him. Uh, and by this point, he, he's actually outrun sidewalk. So he's gotten pretty far. And that's, uh, I think that's where we'll leave Runt for now. It's just to say, walking on the side of a road, occasionally running into the ditch to avoid a car uh, so that we can talk about this characterization. Because I really love this characterization of Runt here. I love the naive simplicity with which he prepares to run away. And really, we should make sure that we're pointing out, I think, too, that away is the key term here, right? He's not really going anyplace. He's just escaping. Yeah, he doesn't really have 
<laughs> too much of a plan other than knowing that he does not want to remain where he is. Um, and he thinks he's identified what he needs to get him where he's going. But again, it's hard to plan where you're a little bit of my day job creeping into our podcast. <laughs> it's hard to plan where you, how to, what you need to get there. If you don't know where you're going and how long it's going to take. It's also very funny, the collection of things he has, because it's a big, it's very candy focused, which as a <laughs> child, like, that's what you might assume, like, oh, well, the things that I know that I want is that I'm going to want X number of Mars bars. The beef jerky, I think, is a little bit of perhaps wisdom there that perhaps, you know, protein is a thing, but doesn't seem to fully appreciate that maybe it should be a little bit more lots of beef jerky relative to the amount of sugar. Well, these are also things that he can get, right? I mean, the the thing that I would pack, and as someone who you know does multi day, sometimes multi week backpacking trips, or you know used to before I had a baby, anyway, uh, you know these are not really things that I would pack. I would make sandwiches and and uh, um, dehydrated food that I'm going to prep. But those are things that I can do as an adult, right? As a ten year old, what can you go into a shop and buy that doesn't require you putting things together, like assembling a sandwich at home and putting it in a Ziploc bag or tinfoil or whatever, uh, that's going to go bad, right? These are shelf stable things that he can purchase at uh, a corner store, right? And, and, and then just hide them. So, you know, it's not just about sort of the, the limited desires of kids or the specific desires for sugar of kids. It's, it's what he's able to do. And the, the, the comic books are the same way. In fact, I think we can surmise that everything that he purchased, he purchased at the same, you know, corner store, wherever that, wherever that might be. Well, and also I think that's a good point that they, you don't have to put something in a Ziploc bag. These things are already all um, self-contained and sometimes you can get beef jerky loose, but I'm imagining it's one of those like individually packaged beef jerky sticks. Um, I'm reminded a lot here of the study uh, about like the children and willpower in terms of like you put a marshmallow in front of them. I can't remember which university did this study many years ago, but I know it's cited frequently where, um, you put a marshmallow in front of them and they, you say, if you wait five minutes and don't eat it, then you'll get two marshmallows at the end of it. And that most of the children can't make it that long. They just, they make it a period of time up to like a minute or two. And then they end up taking the marshmallow, um, rather than delaying the satisfaction and getting twice as much, um, and, you know, in, in reward for their patience. Um, so there's a lot of patience that we see, um, him manifest here. And I think that that's uh, supposed to evoke in some ways, kind of his ability to kind of rationalize out to some extent, kind of where he wants to go and kind of visualize where he is and kind of sets him off from um, his brothers are depicted necessarily as kind of more oafish jerks. <laughs> um, and so this is like the stereotypical kid, which if we were to be honest, the kind of person who is reading a lot of uh, collections uh, that would have Neil Gaiman short stories in it, um, you're likely to already be identifying with this kid at this point, right? Right. He He's us, right? This is a nerds versus jock stories. And hey, guess what? We're the nerds, right? Like that's even if we are also jocks, you know, we can be good at sports, but we're the nerds in this story, right? We definitely identify with with Runt here. And, and, and I think that's what's, you know, a big part of what's being characterized here with the ability to, you know, resist eating the marshmallow for five minutes. But I could do, but only because it's a marshmallow. If that was bourbon, I don't know. Even though, even the promise of two after five minutes, I, I don't know if I could wait five minutes. Maybe four might be all as long as I could hold out. Let's uh, let's do that experiment. We can do that on video and uh, share it with people <laughs> next time we're together. But yeah, he's he's a planner, right? He's read about 
exploring and you know going on adventures before. And so, you know, as much as a 10 year old can, he's putting that into practice, right? He's someone who's uh, self-motivated. He's a self learner, right? And he's able to take what he's read and, and attempt to apply it. Uh, though this, you know, the story does not have a happy ending for rent. We should, uh, should be clear about that. And uh, maybe let's get back to what is going on with Runter. He has no idea where he's going or even where he is. Already he has realized that the world outside of his town is not quite what he expected, and he knows he has to ration his water. So he comes to a pretty big river with a bridge over it, and since he was told in school that ultimately all rivers lead to the sea, he decides to follow it there. He's never been to the sea. And now he's wondering if people have noticed that he's gone yet. And he daydreams a little bit. He he imagines how many people and how many dogs and helicopters are going to be out looking for him. But he is determined to evade them all and get to the sea. But none of that is going to happen because as Runt is settling down for the night along the river, uh, he's near an abandoned farmhouse. And another boy around his age says hello to him. Uh, This boy does not remember his own name, but he goes by Dearly now, and uh, the reason he does that is because that is the only thing that is still legible on his tombstone, uh, which is to say, Dearly Departed is all that is visible there. So yeah, he's dead, and Runt knows it. He knows this more or less right away, and he just accepts it. This is the the magical realism here. It's not a horror story. It's a magical realism story, or at least at this moment, it's magical realism, because I think by the end, we might be thinking of this in terms of a horror story. So Dearly is buried in a cemetery nearby. They they go check it out together. This is where Dearly exists now, along with some other ghosts. But the thing is, He's the only kid ghost, and he's bored, he's lonely, and it's great that Runt has wandered by. And this uh, turns out this is actually an entire town that's been abandoned and and largely been dismantled. Uh, That's something that happened 90 years ago. So Runt and Dearly, they play together all night, they climb trees, they explore, they talk, and Runt really likes it here. He wants to stay, but he knows that he would have to be dead in order to stay here. He fantasizes again about his plan to run away, and he imagines that he'll have adventures, he'll become wealthy, and then he's going to come back to his town, he's going to take his family out to a really nice meal, and of course they'll all apologize for how they treated him, and then he'll leave again, and this time for good. But he really does also know that that's never going to happen. He knows that he'll be found tomorrow or the day after that. And then he'll be home again. But now, this time, everyone's just going to be mad at him. And it's going to, in fact, be worse than it was before, where he was largely just being ignored. And he knows that he's always going to have to be the runt of the family. So he tells Dearly that he wants to stay. But Dearly explains that he can't do it. He's not capable of killing. But the things that dwell in the abandoned farmhouse, well, they could probably do it. And now it's time for Dearly to sleep because the sun is coming up and so he just disappears. Runt walks to the abandoned farmhouse and here is how the the story ends. I'm just going to read these uh, these last lines here. He stopped at the doorway, hesitating, wondering if this was wise. He could smell damp and rot and something else underneath. He thought he heard something move deep in the house, in the cellar maybe, or the attic, a shuffle maybe, or a hop. It was hard to tell. Eventually, he went inside. And we do uh, we do return to the frame narrative very briefly here, but it's, it's really just so June can ask what happened next. And I, I suppose, actually, that is the question, right? Brett, is what happens next? Does Runt die here? Does he become a ghost and get to live with dearly? What, what do you think is happening on the, the next page or the next paragraph? 
Yeah, I think he does. Um, I think that at least, you know, his hope at that point is, which is a strange one. Um, it, it's, it's suicide by whatever is, whoever is in that house, um, so that he can then also be a ghost with dearly, um, which, uh, is really, really dark. Um, yeah, is, is yeah. my interpretation of things, um, which I guess is, um, you know, the point of the October is telling the tale. It says to me a lot about the best way to deal with monsters sometimes is to not particularly show them, which is something that we see again and again in literature, as well as in, um, uh, particularly visual media, um, that, you know, that the alien is scarier when you haven't seen the full alien. Once it's just a guy in a rubber suit, it's <laughs> not quite as scary as it is when it's just like teeth in shadow. And we do then cut away to the family, um, wondering what happened. And, uh, uh it's best not to think about that. Right. Let's go back to, October here and thinking about this as the October story, right? Because, hey, October, that's that's four horror stories, right? So it should be a horror story. And it's interesting that it starts out as this kind of adventure where we're rooting for this kid. And even when we get introduced to what becomes the horror element, it is introduced first as a bit of magical realism, which, you know, is, is something I would associate more with Neil Gaiman than horror, although we have we have talked about the Sandman as a horror comic, and we've talked about Gaiman as a horror writer before, and then only at the end here really morphs into it. And I think for me, definitely 100% with you that that Runt is going to die here, which does mean that if we were to sum up this story in one sentence, it's a story about a 10-year-old who kills himself, a 10-year-old who commits suicide, which is... Uh, tragic and and awful but the question i think really for me here at the end is whether or not he gets to be like dearly and then maybe there is something that seems like a happy ending here and it, i suppose maybe could be in a weird way or does he not become a ghost like dearly right we don't know how ghosts are made in this world because hey it's magical realism so we don't get that explained to us my concern here is that the reason dearly is a ghost who just looks like a person and basically is just himself, just 10 years old forever, is that he's gotten a proper funeral and been buried in the cemetery, which is not going to happen to Runt. And that whatever it is that is in the house is not like dearly at all. So it's either not people or it's people who died in that house and weren't buried or something like that. And so become a different type of ghost. And so, yeah, my, my question, I guess really is, does this have a magical realism ending in which Runt and Dearly are now best friends climbing trees forever? Or is it really a horror story and Runt is now either just dead or becomes whatever these things in the house are? And I think we don't know. I think the hope is that he ends up you know, with them, but I, yeah, we, we, we don't know. And that might be kind of the more terrifying part about it is that he becomes whatever the things of the house are. I guess it's, we don't know whether, and we're left in suspense as to whether the things in the house are just people who would cause ill, or if they're some kind of supernatural or other kind of creature, right? 
Right. And I, I like that this is a question that we're left with, uh, multiple questions, right? Does he actually die? What happens to him if he does die? This ambiguity here at the end is unsettling. And I think the best horror stories, maybe some of the best stories at all, are unsettling, right? They stick with us. Uh, and this is a story, you know, that that uh, this is a story I've read multiple times over the past uh, really two weeks that we've been preparing to do this episode. And it, I feel like the story has been haunting me. I've gone back and forth on some of these questions. I've, I've had to talk about this story multiple times. Times with Elizabeth, my wife Elizabeth, just to get it out of my my head, um, though you know, uh, and uh, and and try to get some perspective on it and to, to to think through it. It's it's really an unsettling story that is going to stick with me for a long time. So I think it's you know masterfully done. It's it's expertly done here. So there, there are a couple of questions here that I've, I've got, and, and you know, we should say, well, we'll go through some of the, the commentary that we've got about this story. There's some extraneous stuff. It's got a dedication. We read this in Fragile Things, which means there's a bit of an introduction here that we'll, we'll talk about as well. But before we get to those things, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, Brent, about really enjoying the two little vignettes that we get in the frame narrative and, and wishing that we had all 12 stories for this month, because... I'm a little unclear about what the frame narrative is doing for us here. It's actually almost a full third of the pages that this story takes up, which is a lot. So what do we actually gain from having those two vignettes? What do we gain from having this frame about the months telling stories to each other rather than just starting this story as it is? Yeah, I'm not sure, at least for me personally, I didn't get anything more about the story that October tells by it being nested within the frame. I think that it can stand alone perfectly fine. I also think that the framing mechanism could also stand alone perfectly fine. And again, that, that's when I am still kind of envisioning a, a Russian nesting doll here. Because <laughs> um, to me, it just it allows an excuse for... I am getting four stories for the price of one. I'm getting the, the, the larger story of there are 12 months personified, um, although nothing happens with the months really. So it's just kind of a fun exchange, but there's not any kind of plot occurring there. So that doesn't work by itself. Um, the two stories we have, September and June's, are done with very quickly, relatively speaking, June very much uh, done faster than September's, but, um, both of those are, are, you know, that if, if that were to be a short story to themselves, that's just a paragraph. I mean, as you said, this reminds a, me a lot as well. Now that you mention it of, um, Calliope where he is just tossing out nuggets of ideas. And so I feel like there is a nugget of a bunch of ideas here that he then just decides, I'm just going to kind of put it together and it almost feels like he works up to eventually getting to the story and that the rest of it is just preamble and that the preamble I'm not sure is necessary, although it does give you the idea of like thinking, okay, well, October and, you know, Halloween is not mentioned, but, um, and so it, it lets you be prepared for a darker story and perhaps, um, can really darken the shadows of the last page or so of October's story. Um, but otherwise I, I'm not, I'm not getting much out of the connection of these things. I just feel like it's nuggets that then are put together because they can be, but uh, what's your thought on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So one thing I'll, I will say is that if I typed up this story and sent it off to a speculative fiction magazine right now with my name on it, it's going to get rejected because this frame is just not acceptable 
because it has nothing to do with what the actual story is. And you can't just send in frame stories to magazines now, right? This story can only <laughs> exist with this frame because it's it's Neil Gaiman and Neil Gaiman gets what Neil Gaiman wants by the time that he's, he's publishing this story. And Otherwise, an editor would have said the story about Runt and Dearly is great. Uh, we'll we'll publish that, but we're we're not going to publish this frame that has no purpose because the, the the frame makes it feel like this is supposed to be part of a much larger story cycle. Which is really what I ultimately want to say is I lament that we don't have that. There is an amazing short story collection in embedded here, which is to say that. This idea of doing something that is more or less um, the Decameron, which is this uh, this book uh, written uh, in the 14th century by uh, Boccaccio in in Italy, uh, that is people who have fled Florence uh, at the time of the Black Death to take refuge in a country villa. They're there for 10 days. Uh, there are 10 of them, and each night they each tell a story. So 10 nights, 10 stories each night, 100 stories. Here we'd have 12 by 12, so we'd get 144 or, you know, a gross if uh, if you don't mind being an offensive hobbit. And I would love to have that, right? Like, that's what this reads like. That's what the frame reads like here is sort of the, the thread between these stories where we're... And I would love to have a 144-story collection of all of these months telling different stories to each other throughout the course of the year where we get each monthly meeting narrated to us. And then we get little interludes in between each story. I mean, I want that. I yearn for that. And, and, and it makes me sad that actually we don't ever get that. Though, you know, Gaiman's still writing. So there's time. We could get that. Yeah, we could. That certainly could be uh, a future kind of, you know, anthology he gives us. Or could it be that he writes it or it's even just this is part of it. And then it, in true anthology, you know, take on things. It, have other authors tackle um, each of them, which would perhaps even give even more varied voices to each of the months in terms of the stories that they tell. Oh yeah, that's a really great idea. I mean, you get Jeff Vandermeer to edit the thing and contribute a couple stories. China Mieville, right? I mean, this is like the the contributed. <laughs> this is the contributor and author and editor list of I don't know, basically every multi-author anthology I've got sitting on the shelves. These guys do a lot of that together, and yeah, something like that would be would be absolutely awesome, right? I think Kelly Link could probably do half of it herself. It would be an amazing collection. So as you mentioned, Glenn, um, since you and I are reading this from the uh, short story collection, Fragile Things, uh, we do have the nice bit in the intro. And sometimes in these intros, we only get one sentence. In this case, we actually get um, uh, almost a whole page of text of background of this particular story, um, which I thought was helpful um, in some ways, although in other ways, as is typical of these things, it gives you more of a uh, idea of the framework for where he came up with it rather than insight into the story itself. But um, what did you think about the um, kind of introductory material that we got? Right. Well, the thing that I, I really want to make sure we talk about here from that is that this story, the idea of a a, a boy in a graveyard and making friends with a, a dead person sounds really familiar, even if all you've ever read uh, by Gaiman are novels and never read any of his short stories before, and this is a new story for you, because this is more or less 
the setup of the Graveyard Book, which is an absolutely wonderful uh, children's novel that Gaiman wrote, that is a, a type of retelling of uh, of Kipling's uh, the the Jungle Book. And uh, the thing that he really says here in the introduction is that he was already working on that. He was starting to think about the idea for the Graveyard Book when he wrote this story, and so that was really what jumped out to me from the introduction. It was very interesting to me, and, and otherwise, it, it gives us a nice little. Um run up to him working in um, with Harlan Ellison uh, to collaborate on a story together. And that's where some of the original nuggets of this story are from, but that Harlan, you know, thought it sounded too much like Neil Gaiman. So they ended up doing something else. Right. And we actually, in our, our last interlude, we uh, we did the Babylon 5 episode, Day of the Dead, that, that Gaiman wrote. And then Harlan Ellison uh, participated in as well. He was the, the voice of the uh, the machine that uh, Zudi the comic uh, uses there. Uh, Harlan Ellison is actually strangely someone that we have never read for anything anywhere on the, the network, despite the fact that uh, he's he's been involved in Star Trek. He's written a you know, bazillion weird fiction stories. You know, We could cover him on almost any show that we do just we never have maybe that's something we'll do in the next interlude after a season of the mist and kipling is someone that we have done before or at least are about to right you and i are going to do kipling next that's the next thing we're going to do here but i have been actually wanting us to do sort of almost as the whole network uh to do the jungle book for a long time because it has uh played a role in several gene wolf stories that brandon and i have done together and i don't know it would probably behoove us if we're ever going to do the graveyard book to actually you know do the jungle book together or something like that or i don't <laughs> know at least one of us should do it maybe if uh, i actually read it to my son which I, I may end up doing maybe i'll do a solo show on it on atos or something but uh yeah uh it's it's great to see all these connections right the way that uh uh gaiman is someone who really is quite collaborative with with people and and friends he's sociable he's not a grumpy writer who you know just hangs out by him himself and doesn't like other people he's someone who goes to cons he's someone who likes hanging out with other writers he's also someone who likes hanging out with his fans or at least is very good at pretending he does I suppose. He's a personable guy. And I think that lends itself to the, your idea of uh, it, bringing other people into this uh, this new Decameron idea that I've got here that, uh, I don't know, I'm going to start harassing him on Twitter to see if he'll, he'll put it together. <laughs> so the other thing we should talk about is that this story is dedicated to Ray Bradbury. What, what do you make of that, Brent? Um, so I mm, have a pretty big blind spot for actually reading Ray Bradbury versus consuming adaptations of Ray Bradbury. <laughs> um, but uh, given his uh, collections of a lot of his kind of stories being put together. Um, and my understanding is that in many of those, there is little uh, linkage sometimes between kind of pulling things together. I'm wondering if that's, um, part of the, um, the sense of things is that, you know, similar to the Martian Chronicles, there's not necessarily a lot holding the meta story with the kind of interior micro stories that the months tell, um, except for just a central kind of conceit of like, well, they're telling the stories, but, um, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I need to, to be upfront too, and say that I I've only read about 10% of what Ray Bradbury has written. He's kind of a blind spot for me too, that I've only actually started to correct in the last few years. Brandon and I have done Bradbury's classic story, the, the Velt on elder sign. And then I did his novel, something wicked this way comes on Atos. Uh, I don't know about a year ago, I guess, or, uh, something like that. Uh, I'll come back to the content of 
of those things in just a moment. But you're, you're right that Bradbury's collections, not all of them, but many of them, do have these uh, bits of framing narrative that connect the stories. So uh, the Velt, for example, is in the collection, The Illustrated Man, where the, the gimmick is that each of these short stories is actually a tattoo that uh, this dude has. The tattoos are kind of magical. So if you look at them, it's not just an image that you're seeing, but you actually get this story narrated to you. But the reason that those collections have that device is that these are all stories that Bradbury had written before and, and sold to magazines that had been published separately, and then binding them together into a book form. To He wrote something additional. Uh, there's a little bit of an introductory story and then a concluding story, right? That's the, the frame, and then you get these vignettes in between the stories that's new material. And the reasons for doing that are it changes uh, the royalties that you get. I don't know that that's true now, but it was true uh, when Bradbury was doing this, that you would get a bigger chunk of publishing royalties if you had new content in there, as opposed to simply a collection of short stories. Uh, also, something fun for Bradbury to do, but then also, of course, something to entice people who perhaps have read all of these stories because they subscribe to all of the science fiction magazines to want to shell out the money to buy them as a, as a book, buy something that you've already read before as a book by having this new material there. So there is quite a bit of that in his short story collections. But I actually think that that's probably secondary to what Gaiman's up to here in dedicating this to Bradbury, because this is very clearly a story that takes place in the American Midwest, which is where Neil Gaiman is living at the time that he writes this. It's where we grew up. And Ray Bradbury actually grew up very close to where we did. We grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago. Ray Bradbury grew up in what is now the northern suburbs of Chicago, but when he was growing up, there would have been, I think, ex-urban is what we would say, or possibly even still a little bit rural between Chicago and uh, Milwaukee. And Bradbury writes a lot about kids. He writes a lot about nerdy kids, smart kids who are struggling to fit in in the world. Uh, the Velt is a story about kids, though they're kids who maybe are a bit murdery because they've been watching too much TV. That's the plot of that story. But Something Wicked This Way Comes is about these these two kids about age 10 who are super best friends who have to fight an evil carnival that comes to, to town, comes to, to Waukegan, uh, Waukegan, Illinois. And the deal is that they are smarter than the adults, right? That they're the, the heroes, right? This is a story that I think is really... Uh, primal to stories that we tell about kids today, right? Like Stranger Things is kind of a Ray Bradbury adaptation in a sense that it's these kids who are smarter than all of the adults who know everything that there is to know about the town in ways that adults just don't see that because they are only looking at roads and sidewalks and houses and don't know about the glue that connects it all. They don't know about the secret passages and the shortcuts and so on because they're seeing the world in such a limited way. And Bradbury is someone who wrote a lot about the ways, the, the magical ways that kids see the world for what it really is in ways that adults can't because we put these blinders on. That is something that Gaiman does as well, that he's really taken from Bradbury. And so to me, this story, just with my limited reading of Bradbury, this reads like a Ray Bradbury story, actually. And I think it is really a love letter to Ray Bradbury along those lines. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, uh, and it was the illustrated man that I was thinking of, not the Martian Chronicles. For some reason, I said the wrong thing. But I think that it in both ways, you're right in terms of this is very much a Redberry, Ray Bradbury story, but also it somewhat is him publicly dedicating it to Ray Bradbury and also an acknowledgement of kind of the loose connection that the stories within the story have um, in the sake of in, in the 
way of the illustrated man. Also, occurs to me talking about Ray Bradbury, and by the way, Brent, I think you, you are right about the Martian Chronicles as well uh, being that way. I just don't know that as well. It's not on my shelf. The Illustrated Man is, and, and uh, there's also one that I've listened to in audio format as well with my niece, in fact, which was uh, uh, super fun. Some great stories there. But it occurs to me that, you know, we grew up in Northern Illinois. Ray Bradbury grew up in Northern Illinois. He uh, wrote a bunch of stories about what that's like. We were kids there once too, who, you know, rode our bikes everywhere, knew the shortcut. I mean, the, the path between your house and my house went through, you know, a secret path in the woods that we had, right? So I don't know, maybe we should actually read a Ray Bradbury story about uh, about kids together at some point in our next interlude. So uh, I will uh, implore listeners who are familiar with Ray Bradbury uh, to, I don't know, give us some suggestions for uh, for what we could do there. But I think if we are planning episodes for the next interlude, if we are planning episodes to do after Season of Mist, uh, we're done with this one. So that is going to do it for now. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to Clay Temple's forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of October in the Chair. For instance, if there were to be other tales we would hear, what would February's or January's tales sound like? Would it just be a collection of minutes from a meeting um, they where nothing occurs? Uh, I imagine that's the way I would particularly write it. But how would you write it? Or how, what kind of uh, t- story would August give us? Or, you know, would December's be um, darker but less horrific in some ways than october's what are your thoughts yeah maybe we should just do this short story collection right we'll we'll take our cue from gaming and uh uh we and uh and our our listeners can can put a collection like this together i I would certainly love to read what stories people would write if they were telling them in the voice of uh, of any one of these months that would be a lot of fun at the very least brent maybe we should go do that for like our birth months or or something like that and uh, let listeners have at it well we also hope that you will uh check us out out on patreon.com slash clay temple media because your support keeps our shows on the air and for the cost of buying all four of us here at the network just one cup of coffee to share each month you get access to monthly bonus episodes and at the higher tiers you can have your say in what we cover across the network and even get us to do bonus episodes especially for you well, next month, we are going to be back with some Rudyard Kipling. That'll be the short story, Dim Church Flit, which is a story about Puck. You can see the connections there, why we're going to be doing that one. Very excited to check that out. That's some Kipling I have not read before. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>